Today joining me on the Milwaukee Logic Podcast, we have Mary Burst. We're going to be talking about gun control, mass shootings, and all of the best and worst arguments that you've probably heard over the last several days and really the last several years about the subject. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Never been better, except for all the times that I have been. (laughs) All right, so last week we had yet another mass shooting in America at a school, and this time it was a little bit different. This time we had, we had warning signs, we had evidence, we had, we had things to look at, police calls to the house, what was it, 39 or 36, I forget, um, reports yeah. to the FBI, YouTube comments, um, the kid apparently saying that he was procuring a weapon for purposes of a school shooting. He had referenced being a school shooter. Unlike previous instances, we we had an awful lot to go on. Or there was a lot of reason for law enforcement to to arrest this guy, look into him, and take some sort of action to prevent him from doing what happened. so I think that's important to me. Um, there's kind of I don't know if you have you looked into at all the the white supremacy kind of myth and trope that came up over the weekend that that was getting pushed a lot. Have you read anything about that? You know I I had seen that when the story first broke and I know that they had. Um... I think when the guy was originally called, he said, yeah, um, I knew that as soon as this shooting happened, I was going to be getting a call, but I have not followed up with it after that. So here's the deal. This group had about 12 members, and none of them were particularly active. And so the, the main guy that was getting called and, and asked, asked about it um, he had tried on many occasions to develop to get some any or any kind of um, pop, um, publicity for their group. He was trying to get attention anywhere he could. He was contacting liberal organizations and poking at them, trying to get their attention to try to get on their radar. And he was hoping for some negative publicity, and therefore that would get him some attention, and they could attract some members because they weren't being very successful. So he was trying to claim that this guy was an active member of their group when apparently there were some conversations, he had perhaps wrote out to one meeting, but the idea that he was super active in their group is apparently was apparently overblown and not true. This guy was pushing that and making that up. So it's just another group, another fringe group. I mean, you're talking about a dozen people. This isn't evidence of some sort of a movement. There's no reason to believe that um, there's a big white supremacist movement that's going to be spinning off more terrorism and attacking people. I mean, if this kid, if his goal was to kill a bunch of Jews, because <laughs> apparently he didn't like Jews very much, um, <laughs> He didn't do a very good job because, you know, and also he was apparently, you know, very misogynistic. Um, 
when his ex-girlfriend was cheating on him and broke up with him, that apparently what caused him to kind of spin out of control for a while. So there is conjecture, speculation that um, a hatred of women and feminism uh, may have been a contributing factor to what he did. But none of that really makes a whole lot of sense because if he was a white supremacist, he killed an awful lot of just regular white people. Yeah, random, random high school kids. Random high school kids. And if he was out there to kill women because he hates feminists, well, he shot an awful lot of, of males, too. Right. So Yeah, I think interesting is just how, kind of what you said, there were so many different warning signs about this guy. I mean, um, the cops went to his house on multiple occasions. The FBI was tipped off. He wrote on a YouTube video that he wanted to be a professional school shooter. Um, and the guy on YouTube reported him both to YouTube and to the FBI. And all of these things were overlooked. So, um, and I know we'll get into this a little bit more, but at what point do we start holding those people responsible for, um, you know, for not following up and for not taking something seriously? Obviously, we had plenty of warnings, plenty of red flags, and now we're just dealing with the consequences, these really tragic consequences of these failures um, from a governing body. Well, it's kind of further proof of kind of the, the idea, the concept that government sucks at everything. <laughs> so if the idea is that government needs to take action to remove guns from people in such a way that they don't start a civil war, first of all, but also, uh, you know, protect us from criminals, protects us from, well, really each other, when we are giving up the ability or the right to protect ourselves, how can we expect that we can reasonably rely on them to do that when they can't even deal with one kid when they were called to his house either 36 or 39 times or whatever it was when he was making public online postings bragging or stating that he was going to be a school shooter yeah and I mean <laughs> well I think there's several cases I don't remember the story too clearly, but I remember a few years ago in Milwaukee, there was a big botch by the uh, by the ATF on a gun raid there, and <laughs> I mean, right right there is an instance where you're you're trying to trust the government with fixing a problem, and all they did was make it worse. I'm pretty sure those guns were either stolen or somehow ended up missing, and um, I don't know whose hands they ended up in, but I'm sure they weren't law-abiding citizens. Okay. So I think first, um, thanks to Dan O'Donnell of News Talk 1130, News Talk 1130 WISN in Milwaukee, he compiled a top five major gun control myths and debunking them as they relate to mass shootings, and I think they're of interest, so I want to start with those. So, myth one, the United States is the only country in the world where mass shootings happen. So I don't think anyone's actually stated that outright, they're just kind of people imply that it happens here more than other places, and when people want to make that point, what example do they always bring up? Um, I don't know, you tell England. 
They're always oh, yeah, comparing America there. to Britain because they had a mass shooting whenever that was, 89 or 90 or whatever. Then they banned and guns. They banned and they haven't had a school shooting since. What? I said they banned all the handguns. Mm-hmm. So the that kind of the trope is set up that America is the only place that this happens, that we're super violent, which, you know, compared to compared to England, we are. But compared right. to the rest of the world, maybe not so much. So it turns out that the mass murder in Parkland, that school shooting, was the 57th, 57th deadliest in the world over the past century. It still seems like it ranks pretty high. Um, the deadliest in American history was the Las Vegas massacre in October. Sure. But that was just the 15th deadliest in the world. Only so two, we're not even in the top 10. We're not in the top 10. So only two of the 30 deadliest were in the United States in the last 50 years. Nine out of 10 of the deadliest mass shootings happened in the last decade. So that's kind of debunking the idea that um, things are getting that um, things are getting better in the rest of the world. I mean, a lot of things have happened recently, but all of those were the result of Islamic terrorism. And a majority of the of the deadliest shootings in the world are also due to. Um, Islamic terrorism. The second deadliest shooting in American history was the shoot was the Pulse nightclub attack in Orlando. But people repeat it so often that people still have this idea that it's just re it's a lie that's repeated so often that people think that the United States is still so dangerous that a lot of mass shootings are still happening here in comparison to other places. And really, there's just more attention paid to it here. We, we talk about it a lot. We get horrified by these things because, I mean, we should. Well, yeah, but at the same time, you are far mm -hmm. more likely to be killed by someone you know. Um, the odds of you being gunned down by a random stranger or even killed by a random stranger are, are so much smaller than um, mass shootings. Are at, and mass shootings are such a small percentage of... Um, of gun murders overall. I mean, when we really break it down, it's on the tail end of the spectrum. People forget that the number one way to die by a gun is via suicide. And that's not a conversation that we have at all in this country. Yeah, two-thirds of gun deaths in the United States are due to suicide. Um, that's one point that Dan O'Donnell brings up, talking about... Um, the fact that it is two-thirds of, of gun deaths in the United States are due to suicides. Excuse me, and I think 13, the, the suicide rate in the United States is like 13.4 per 100,000 people. And comparing, so gun control is offered up as a way to reduce suicide. The problem is that Japan has almost complete gun control. But their suicide rate is much higher. It's 19. Eight or whatever per hundred thousand. It's nineteen point something. So the, I mean, the simple truth is, if you want to kill yourself, the quickest, quickest and easiest way to do it is with a gun. But if you don't have that gun, you're still going to do it. Right. So between going you know, back to the idea of uh, America being such a concentrated area, or you know, such a violent offender when it comes to violent offenders. 
Between January of 2009 and December of 2015, a period that President Obama had been in office, there were 11 European countries with a higher frequency of mass shootings defined as, the mass shootings defined as a shooting in which four or more people mm -hmm. were killed. There are 11 European countries with a higher frequency of mass shootings than the U.S. and 10 European countries with a higher rate of deaths from these attacks. Over the same period of time, the European Union suffered 303 deaths from mass public shootings while the U.S. had 199. In terms of injuries from these attacks, the gap was much greater. The EU countries facing 680 versus 197. So there's obviously population differences, so when you count for that, the fatality rate in the EU per million people in mass shootings was 0.62. <laughs> so again, speaking to your point that it's very graphic and it's very scary and we all get really upset when these things happen because, I mean, they're truly horrific. It's just 0.62 per million people. So that's 0.62 in the EU and the United States is 0.60. So you are more likely to die in a mass shooting in the European Union than in the United States. The hyper-progressive... Well, I going to Europe. <laughs> right. Um, the injury rate in the EU from mass shootings is much higher. 0.61 in the US. I had the previous numbers backwards. As it was 0.62 deaths per million in the US, 0 0.60 in the EU, but they're virtually identical. Um, the rate of deaths in, in the EU is much higher, 0.61 per million in the United States, with 1.34 in the EU. So apparently, mass shooters in the European Union aren't very good with their aim. <laughs> I so, it would. <laughs> so it would seem. I shudder to think what their toilets, toilets look like. <laughs> well, one thing, too, I mean, I read a a blurb about the um, the World Health Organization said that um, you know in 2016 there were 1,637 children who were killed by gunfire. Again, I mean that's super tragic. It's it, you never want to hear that a child has been killed by a gun. Um, but when you look overall, there are between the ages of zero and 17, there are 74 million kids in the United States. Um, when you break that down, that 1,637 number into 74 million kids, again, you're coming up with a number that's virtually zero. And obviously, you know, you're not trying to be mean to the parents or harsh to the people that cared about this child because that child did matter. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, we're still really safe. And to just have these knee-jerk reactions to these events that happen just isn't um, it isn't isn't a wise way to go about fixing anything. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind as we're having this conversation about guns or gun control or just um, any sort of gun violence in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yes, and this kind of this touches on um, another point that I want to get to a little bit later, but. We spend a lot of time, or we attach a lot of credence to emotional reaction of the aggrieved. Um, obviously, a parent who lost a child in a mass shooting is going through a, an incredibly 
difficult time emotionally. But I'm not a fan of the idea or the argument that as a ex, as a whatever, as a person who lost a child in something like this, that their opinion, their conclusions, their prescriptions matter more. Um, people use that all the time. Look, well, as a man, I, I'm saying this, or I think this, or as a woman, or as a black person, or as a, you know, as a Jewish person, as an Asian, whatever. As a person who's experienced this, at some point, reason and evidence has to rule the day for the when it comes to the actions that we're going to take. Um, I think it's important to. Well, I guess we can get more into that when I actually want to get to that topic. I don't want to expend all of my gunpowder right now. So you don't want to jump the gun. <laughs> all of these gun jokes when it comes to mass shootings, this is just horribly triggering, I think. Um, next myth. This one's really good. More guns mean more murders. So, Dr. John Lott has a book called More Guns, Less Crime, and he talks about how in areas where, and he's talking about specific localities where there's higher rates of gun ownership, you actually have less crime. Um, we reviewed <laughs> an article the other day where we were, talk, we were talking about, or it was talking about how states that have higher gun ownership rates have more crime. But the locations of the gun ownership and the and the crime are not the same within the state. So that's something we can talk more about. But for right now, the percent changes since 1993. So in 1990 or since 1993, the number of privately owned firearms in the United States has increased by 56 percent. The gun homicide rate during that same time period has decreased by 49 percent. Um, we spend a lot more time paying attention to the victims of gun crimes now, which I think it's important to keep in mind, obviously, the what these people are going through and empathize with them. But it creates a it creates an idea that things are getting worse when they're not. Um, what you could right. say is that we're, we're comparing the gun homicide rate to a raw number of privately owned firearms. So we have a per capita rate versus just a raw number when population is increasing, and that would, of course, be a valid point. So comparing the guns per person in the United States versus the gun homicide rate per 100,000 people. In 1993, the gun homicide rate per 100,000 people was seven per year. In 2013, it was down to 3.6, which works out to about 49%. Who would have thought? The guns per person in the United States in 1993 was 0.94. In 2013, it had risen to 1.45. So obviously, there's other factors. Just to blame the gun, if you're going to blame the gun, then there should be a linear relationship or at least a strong correlation between the number of guns that are possessed by random citizen X and the amount of homicides that are occurring. If there is not that correlation, then it would be reasonable to assume that there are other factors in play. Um, the assault weapons um, con contribution to murders, like more weapons like an AR-15 mean more murders. 
Of course, it should be noted that the AR and AR-15 does not stand for assault rifle. <laughs> it is a oh, reference yeah. to the important. company that created the design before they sold it to Colt. So it, it's really not even an assault rifle. It's just a rifle, and it just looks a little more badass. So people right. get scared of it. Scary looking. It must be terrible. It looks bad. So over the same time period, there has been a massive increase in, in ownership, the ownerships of AR-15s. They were, of course, banned in 1994. The ban was in place for 10 years in 2004. They were legal to be purchased again. And the, gun, the ownership rate of AR-15s increased dramatically, obviously, you're able to buy it again, but since 2004, the murder rate has been relatively flat. There was a yeah. large decrease in the murder rate between 93 and 99, and there's been lots and lots there's and lots been... of talk about that. Yeah, and there was an uptick the past couple years, but overall, violent crime has gone down. Yes, the, the Ferguson effect. <laughs> so in 2012 there were a total of 12,765 total gun homicides in those the perpetrators used almost 9,000 different guns 72% were handguns while only 3.6% were rifles at all there are no numbers as to how many were AR-15s because there's not enough to even keep track of. <laughs> Another good one. Gun confiscation like Australia's would reduce gun crime. So the the comparison of America to, or the United States specifically to Australia is made. It's not a particularly good comparison because prior to the gun ban in 1996, the murder rate in Australia had been steadily decreasing and the decrease since then has more or less continued at a similar rate. It should also be noted excuse me, that only about one third of gun owners in Australia actually turned in, turned their, guns. in their guns. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't get more guns and most of the guns that were out there are still out there and the trend has continued as it, as it had before. So it's far more reasonable to assume that the gun buyback in Australia did nothing, that gun control laws in Australia have been ineffective since the rate has, the rate of decrease has not become more pronounced. <laughs> the second derivative isn't getting larger. Um, <laughs> so is mass gun confiscation possible in the United States? Almost certainly not. Oh, well, no. There's, I mean, it's definitely not. I mean, there's 100 million gun owners and about, like, what, 450 to five, half a billion guns in the United States? Good luck. Yeah, there's definitely more guns than people. And, I mean, another thing, too, even if you took the guns away, there are so many ways to... Uh, make a ghost gun. I mean, now with 3D printing, obviously it's going to be a little bit more difficult, but there's so many ways to still produce them or import them illegally, thanks to our dear friend, the black market. 
Um, so even <clears throat> even this whole idea of people turning in their weapons or taking their weapons or you know getting rid of guns somehow just is not a uh, it's just not a realistic approach to to take. Um, most gun deaths are in homicides or accidental shootings. We kind of referenced this a little bit previously. But of the 33,000 annual gun deaths in the United States each year, two-thirds are suicides. If we got rid of the guns, it wouldn't be very effective because, like I previously mentioned, the suicide rate in Japan, where there's almost complete gun control, has a higher suicide rate. If you want to kill yourself, you're going to use the easiest method available. And if the easiest method here isn't available to you anymore, you'll pick a different one. Right. And the final one is the NRA. So we have... I want to get to that later, actually. Because I have more, more data than what Dan O'Donnell used. So I think there's some important questions that need to get asked and need to get answered. And... They're going to sound a little tongue-in-cheek, because it's me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they're, they're serious questions. So to me, the first question is, do mass shootings make a good rationale for passing stricter gun laws? Um, I think you were in some debates over the weekend where the, the argument is thrown at you or just thrown out in general that what if it was your kid? Yeah, what if? Well, I haven't procreated yet, so I'm not in a, in a position to say. Um, but I don't think that that's a very solid um, argument to uh, to pass stricter legislation. Um, for one, we always seem to have these conversations when people are uh, in the heat of the moment, right? Like, And psychology will tell you that when you're <clears throat> upset or when you're angry or when you're frustrated or when you're hurting you're not going to be making sound judgments you will be reacting to the circumstances at hand um, and you most likely will not be thinking uh, with a sound mind so um, that being said I, I don't think that using this uh, this this passion that happens every time that there's a mass shooting to drive legislation is the way to approach it um, I also think that there's a lot of differences that we don't talk about because a mass shooter is going to be a, a much different person than someone who is a, um, you know, is just out to murder someone um, or someone who ends up being a homicide victim and obviously is a, a much different character template than someone who commits suicide. And in order to, to really properly address any sort of um, gun control or even legislation or uh, just talking about it in general, we need to not be thinking in these broad terms and, and using these like sweeping generalizations. Um, I think it's far more effective if we look at um, look at people in those three different categories and kind of make distinctions that way. And like we touched on earlier, mass shootings are such a small, small percentage of, um, of overall gun murders. And statistically speaking, they're you know they're almost null so how how do we find ways to curb or reduce fun, gun violence um, and I think that's a it's a conversation worth having but also just realizing that <clears throat> getting that number 
closer to zero is, is probably not going to happen um, because it's already so close to zero. There just isn't that wiggle room to move down. It's already statistically zero. Right. So how do you create a law or a program or a solution that's going to take, that's going to completely eliminate the outlier? It's essentially impossible. It is impossible. I mean, it's the same, you know, a couple years ago they had the zero in Wisconsin initiative that they passed, and it was zero deaths on Wisconsin roadways. And I'm like, well, that's impossible. <laughs> the only way to do that is if everyone stops driving. And the, there there are accidents. There are things that are out of our control that, that you just can't um, – that you just can't account for. Everyone, everyone need to just park their vehicles for the year, and then we would reach that number. So, yeah, I like I like um, propositions that are realistic uh, and that you know you can back up or justify. But this is such a, a weird case because, as we said, like statistically they are zero. So where does that leave us? So since it's statistically insignificant, like when you have that situation, when you have the, the unlikely or the outlier event, you have to feel for the people that are the victims. You have to reach out in any way that you can. You have to help them. But to stand on their graves and use them as, in a cynical um, effort to just get done whatever it is that you already wanted to get done, I think is it's, it's a quite ugly thing to do. In my opinion. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to politicize dead people. It's just not something that I'm a, a big fan of. But also, it's uh, I think it's a method or a strategy that's commonly used by the left. Um, when you when I look at the Black Lives Matter movement, it was very very common. It was when there was a shooting or when there was a you know a shooting death by the hands of police. Uh, whether the police himself was white, black, or otherwise, there was a massive push to react and protest and get something done and make something happen and blame and automatically blame the police before the facts were known. And the explanation was, the reasoning was that you need to kind of strike when the iron's hot. You need to get people reacting while the emotion is ramped up. But like you previously stated, you're going to make your worst decisions when you are emotionally distraught. When you are in the, the, the early wake of a tragedy, kind of before your, your better logic has had a chance to kick in, you're going to make your worst decisions. You're going to do the worst things that you will ever do in that type of situation. So it's a, a common strategy that they can use to get people to forget their own logic to um, not rely on reason and evidence but instead to rely on emotions and they can use that to get done whatever it is that they want to get done in the case of Black Lives Matter they could, well really it was a cynical way to try to control an election cycle and it didn't work. Where's Black Lives Matter been in, since uh, the beginning of 2017? Yeah. In 2016 yeah. it seemed like... In, I, a, notice in 2015, you heard about almost no police shootings of black suspects. Very few. There was a lot in 2014. Why? Well, we had a midterm election. There was a ton in 2016. Why? Well, we had a presidential election. There haven't been that many 
or there were very few that got talked about, very few new ones in 2017. So it'll be very interesting to me to track and to watch as we get through 2018 and we get closer uh, to this next midterm election. Is this going to be brought up again? Are they going to be talking about every instance? I don't think it's reasonable to assume that suddenly in 2017 very few cops have been involved in on-the-job or you know live shootings with suspects or people that they were arresting or questioning or whatever. I'm not likely to believe that. But not as many have been talked about. So why? There isn't much to be gained from it. So kind of building on that, is it good to make legislation regarding our personal liberty on an emotional basis? <laughs> oh, that's such a great question. I mean, it's all about the feels, right? All about the feels. The, the world that we live in now is extremely feeling-based. I mean, it's it's so hard to have rational discussion because people are constantly getting their feelings hurt they're constantly offended um everyone wants to everyone wants to be right based on their opinion and not necessarily backing up what they're believing with any sort of facts and they're backing a lot of that up with feelings well i don't think people know how to make an argument anymore they don't they don't start with what is the nature of reality that that the you know the environment that a particular issue is existing in what is true within that environment and then they don't you know they don't start with metaphysics go to epistemology and then once that's been settled and discussed move on to a moral judgment they start with the moral judgment and work their way back from there right. that's very dangerous so what there and there, there's two other things related to that well, I think the big thing is true that, too, that feelings change. I mean, you could be really mad about something and want to pass legislation, or you could be really pumped about something and want to pass legislation, but then what happens when you don't have those same feelings anymore? Or when you see the total results of that legislation and see all of the externalities or the unintended consequences that come, up, come up, um, out of that and realize that the world has been made a worse place by your legislation, not better. I mean, that's something right. that has happened very often from the left and the right. Um, you know, we talk a lot about how the welfare state, the unintended consequences of the welfare state is to destroy destroy families, and especially the black family, um, but also just destroy families in general. And the, the effects that that has had on younger generations and people that have come out of broken families and how that affects their actions later in life and how the aggregate effects of all their actions, what that does to a society. But also, like we talked about, the right is guilty of the exact same thing in making emotional judgments and reacting and passing laws. And you look at the, the war on drugs and the war on crime in general, what is yeah. that other than an emotional overreaction to a... A massive perceived problem right oh yeah and I mean it's been a huge failure and it's cost us billions of dollars and the results have been non-existent at best I think it 
was it in 1970 there was 350,000 inmates in the prison population in the United States currently there's two and a half million yeah and how many of those are for petty drug charges not an amazing number but it's there's definitely a lot more of them I just watched um, the the Netflix documentary 13th a reference to the 13th amendment that as they would would almost put in scare quotes ended slavery um, forced servitude except for prisoners <laughs> people that have been duly convicted of a crime and are serving out their sentence so I mean they tried to make the point that the United States has criminalized black people and with a you know with the goal of putting them all in jail so then you can get them to be working for free and then it's re-enslavement I mean that's a pretty uh, it's a pretty ridiculous claim really at no point in the entire documentary did they ever cite any actual crime statistics. I mean, it was like huh. almost, it was like an hour and a half, or more than that, almost two hours. No crime statistics were ever brought up. No reference to any crimes that are actually committed. But they did make an excellent point about focusing on certain types of crimes that certain groups are more likely to commit and other groups are less likely to commit. And I think that's certainly a result of reacting to a problem and making an emotional decision. When we look at the war on poverty, <laughs> the question that's often asked, what's the, lo what's the longest war in the United States history? War on poverty. Um, so since the early 60s, and really going all the way back to the New Deal, we've had this war on poverty. We've spent trillions and trillions of dollars trying to end poverty with... Um, social welfare problems and income redistribution programs we haven't solved poverty we haven't decreased poverty 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 has gone up has increased we determined that we needed medicare to make it cheaper for people to afford you know basic medical care if they when they are getting older the result of it is there has been more waste within the medical industry as we have this death knell combination of government socialism and private markets and free markets it's like the worst it'd be better to have socialized medicine than the combination that we have now but that's again that's a discussion for another time I would make the argument that every time that we make a decision regarding personal liberty on an emotional basis things get worse not better Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, if you look at, even if you look at when they were really, um, uh, trying to crack down the AIDS epidemic and some of the things that they did there, it was, it was legislation and it was things that were implemented that were very much based on feelings and, and weren't necessarily good right off of the bat. You know, it's, it's good intentions, but then what are the long-term repercussions? Yeah, there, with any action, with any government action or even personal action, there are externalities, unintended consequences. And until you've taken the time to consider what those are going to be, it's very irresponsible to make any kind of sweeping change or legislation. So I think the next important question, because we're talking about 
you know, the, the change that we're talking about regarding personal liberty is gun ownership. So why is owning guns important? I mean, we don't have to survive by hunting. <laughs> um, that time has passed. Not that many people make their livelihood from trapping. Um, right. So why does it matter? MJ Burst, why is gun ownership important? <laughs> well, I mean, for one, it's uh, <sighs> it's important to keep your government at bay, right? I mean, and it's a, it's literally a part of our constitution. Um, we have the right to bear arms. Um, I mean, if you're going strictly on the, uh, on the, on the idea that at some point you'll need to keep your own government in check, like that's probably a little further down the road, but um, like Cheers I think the, <laughs> I think the um, the basis of gun ownership. I mean, why do you own a gun? I mean, you own a gun for protection, um, whether that's protecting yourself, your family. I mean, yes, there are definitely enthusiasts out there who it's a hobby and it's a sport. Um, but I would say the the main purpose of owning a gun is to is to keep yourself safe. Now, this is this is one particular part of it that I can I think most honestly see both sides. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's further questions. You know, I mean, a huge amount of shootings, not gun deaths, but just shootings are a result of accidents. I don't have the particular statistics in front of me. I believe there was as many accidental shootings as intentional shootings per year. I need to, I would need to verify that, but I have that number in my head. Why would I be thinking that if it's not true? Um, <laughs> to quote the great Mark Belling. <laughs> um, so, I mean, obviously I think that when the Second Amendment was passed, or not passed, when it was included in the, bill, the original Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. Um, the idea of government was a lot less stable. There were a lot of people, and it would have been pretty reasonable to assume that our own government that we were setting up would end up looking very different than it was initially being set up and would very quickly get tyrannical as what we were setting up had more elements of democracy mm -hmm. than what there was in the past and the tyranny of a majority is just as scary as a tyranny of one right um, I think the the line that was often used is why is it better to have 3,000 dictators a mile away rather than one dictator 3,000 miles away I think there I think there was um, I think there's a lot of truth to that but now we have over 200 years of an unbroken line of a stable government. Now we did have a civil war, but that was over 150 years ago. Right. And technology has improved so much. So at when when the Constitution was ratified and the Second Amendment was put in place, you could put together a militia, and you could, with a straight face, say that you're going to resist the government. Or if you're going to do that now, you can resist, but you're going to be dead. Well, right. That happened, what was that, like out in Oregon or Washington last year? Or No, that was during the Obama administration. 
I didn't end up dead, but um, that was a an interesting legal battle. Yeah, the land battle between the farmers. Mm-hmm. They were grazing their cattle on traditional land that they had traditionally grazed it on, but they didn't actually own the land. I think it was public land, so that was a. It seemed like a, a strange hill to die on, in my opinion, but. It was certainly yeah. a fascinating debate that I didn't quite get into that deeply. <laughs> <laughs> so my response to a lot of, I mean, again, very good points about um, resisting the government being kind of crazy. Um, I'm not a posi comitatus. I'm not over here in some sort of militia with 100 firearms and 10,000 rounds of ammunition and grenade launchers and such saying that we're going to take down the government if they come after us. But I think as important is that lawmakers have to have a different attitude towards the things that they do and towards the liberties of the people that they rule over when they know that there's 100 million people that have guns. And if you right. go too far, there's going to be a lot of blood in the streets. Yeah, agreed. It's an important thing for them to keep in mind, even though if push, push comes to shove, Am I going to stick some rounds in my guns and shoot them at a soldier coming after me? No, self-preservation is going to win the day, and I'm almost definitely not going to do that. I'm a little too cowardly for that, I think. But, you know, depending on what the situation is, maybe right. not. I don't know. We have options. Yeah. Um, I mean, you really don't know until you're in that situation. You can speculate all you want, but... <laughs> to me... Well, I think is more important because I don't there aren't 100 million people that are going to take up arms against their government if things go too far but there's a lot of people that would and most of the people like me and most of the other people in the country that own guns aren't going to take their guns and go looking for um a soldier or a policeman or a government employee or whatever to go shoot but we'll be in our house and when you come in to kill us we're going to go down you know we're not going to go down without a fight so right which also we'd lose i'd end up dead and but if you're going to end up dead either way yeah i mean and realistically you're not going to take anyone down with you because you'd be dealing with people with body armor and whatnot uh, I think G. Gordon Liddy, who incidentally was one of the um, Watergate um, perpetrators in the Watergate break-in, he was on the radio in the 90s, and after Waco, and uh, it might have actually been before Ruby Ridge, um, I think it was after, but I, I would have to double-check that, he was on the radio saying that if you have ATF agents breaking into your house, you need to aim for the groin or the head. That's a bit much, but I mean, there had been a number of instances of government agents breaking into private property, and all the people that were there are dead. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not impossible to imagine that kind of thing's happening. Now, where I think it's important, where the rubber really meets the road, and where this all becomes reasonable, is how many soldiers in the arm, in the either the Marines or the Army or. Um, the National Guard or even in the police forces are going to go into houses and start cleaning people out just because they want to maintain their liberty. They don't want to put up with a government that is 
um, gotten out of control. I'm just not seeing that being a huge number of people. Um, the soldiers that spend a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan or Vietnam or whatever had, and this kind of leads into the next point I was going to make, but they have enough psychological problems and difficulty of, try, of going halfway around the world and fighting a guerrilla war with against people that are completely different than them. Mm-hmm. And the collateral damage and the loss of innocent life really, really affects the psyche of um, a person who came up in Western culture. Right. And no amount... I shouldn't say this. You can you can brainwash people. You can whatever. But the Marines isn't training people to go shoot innocents. At some right. point, their allegiance to God and what's right is going to, shall we say, trump um, <laughs> what they're commanded to do. Right. At some point, there are people that have some level of agency, and they're going to have to make their own decisions. And when push comes to shove, if they are told to, if they are told to just go um, and force an unarmed person to submit, they would probably do it. But if they're told to, to force an armed person who's going to be shooting back, and you're going to have to kill them, to submit to a, a, an evil law or an evil government, how long are they going to do that for? They can kill a thousand people, ten thousand, yeah, right? Not a hundred million. So I think it's important that the government has to keep that in mind and always has to remember you have control, but it is not absolute. Right. So, I mean, this kind of covers the next question was, can private citizens reasonably expect to resist government tyranny with guerrilla warfare? Short answer is no, but with all the caveats that I just explained, kind of yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you posted something that speaks to this next question. I think you can talk about that. Is the Constitution even relevant anymore, or should it be? Oh, and man. Surely. <laughs> I mean, it was a document that allowed slavery, enslavement of black people, um, didn't give women the right to vote. It required land ownership to even to have the franchise. Originally, there wasn't a popular election for the president or senators. So, why is the Constitution relevant? Why should we even care that the Second Amendment exists? <laughs> well, I think the mistake that a lot of people make is that the, they think that the Constitution is this living, breathing thing, um, but it's not. And the things that are in there are in place for a reason. And if you want to change something, there's a process to make an amendment. And that process has never changed. And um, obviously there are multiple amendments to the Constitution. So if this is really a situation where um, the citizens of the United States think that the Second Amendment is something that needs to be changed or modified or done away with altogether. Uh, there's a process that, that's followed to to make that happen. Um, and, and a lot of that is to keep intact the things that make this country this country. Um, you can't just go around changing laws and, and doing whatever you want. Um, that undermines 
a lot of different things. Um, but I think people, again, this goes back to people acting on feelings and not on, on rationale and, and not on the, uh, the systems that are already in place. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not going to get into just constitutional law in general, but, um, yeah, there, there's there's a way to there's a, there's a right and a wrong way to do things, and I think right now people are trying to go about things the wrong way. <clears throat> right. Um, so I mean, yes, I think it's important, and I think a main feature of the Constitution was how difficult it is to change. Not impossible. I mean, there were there was the the Bill of Rights of the first ten amendments that an astonishing, astonishingly low number of people know what more than three of them are. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it was amended after that many more times, and, you know, all the way up through the, the 26th Amendment, which limited the presidency to two terms. The right for the the franchise for women the right for women to vote that was an amendment um there were amendments that were put in place and then removed um you know the prohibition of alcohol prohibition. so it would not be unprecedented for a amendment to be abolished or removed so like you say there's a method for doing it and if that's your goal, be upfront about it. Be honest about it. Say, hey, we shouldn't have the Second Amendment anymore, and go about actually getting rid of it so we can have an honest debate about this subject. Because that's what people really want. The people that are using and standing on the graves of the Sandy Hook victims and, and the Florida shooting victims and all any other school shooting um, or the church shootings, anyone... Any of the people standing on the graves of those victims saying that we need lots of gun control, what they really want is they want no more guns. That's what they want. Right. Let's just be honest about it. They'll bullshit and say that they don't. That's what they want, and they know it. They're usually pretty honest about it, but when they're in public, they're not. So if that's what you want, repeal the Second Amendment. Let's have the debate, a real debate. Like I said, there's portions of it that I can see both sides. We can have an honest debate. But don't stand here in the wake of a shooting when everyone's emotions are turned up to 10 and demand some sort of sweeping change and have the steady drip, drip, drip of more and more gun regulation that's going to eventually get you where you really want to go. Right. And also, it doesn't work. And if, with everything else, that steady drip, drip, drip has seemed to work, whether it's the proliferation of the welfare state, um or anything else, there's a slow erosion of the culture due to, you know, a lot of changes that are made out of emotions, and there's, like, little incremental changes, and they're always moving the football a little bit, or, you know, moving down the field, you know, one first down at a time. Right. They got the assault weapons ban in 1994. It lasted 10 years. It expired. And hasn't been renewed. That's it. I don't know why that is. I mean, but even when you look at some of the different states, I mean, Colorado passed 
uh, pretty strict on background laws like three years ago, I think. Um, and overall, there's been there's no significant increase on, you know, it hasn't been effective. Oh, oh, well, right, yeah, it hasn't been effective. So I don't know why. And I mean, I guess there's a lot of it. it this goes back to with even with this shooting in in Florida. I mean, you you have multiple bodies who were tipped off about this, but nobody acted. So if no one's enforcing things, you can pass every law in the book. But if no one's going to actually um, take charge and like implement said laws, nothing's going to matter. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it kind of gets back to the point that government sucks at everything. You can already have a law, but there, what's the point of passing another law if there's already a law that, if it had been adequately enforced, would have present, uh, prevented something? Right. Sure. And this gets into um, the idea that states and um, I have up... So you sent me an article. That's a little bit more than an article. Um, yeah, it's like a periodical. <laughs> yeah, from the U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institute of Health, because that's not a mouthful. <laughs> but it made a lot of very, 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 I think, uh, prescient points, because the major thing and the argument that comes up all the time, and we keep hearing it up until extre extremely recently, I kind of bought because I hadn't read this and I hadn't researched any of the other aspects of this because I didn't know how much information was available on this but the argument that, that Ann Coulter um, made the claim that guns don't kill people, mentally ill people do um, but the fact of the matter is and this is one of the few actually hard statistics that this periodical cites or, but between depending on where you, where and when you are looking, between three and five percent of crimes of, of violent shootings, gun crimes are committed by people that are considered mentally ill, and unfortunately, significantly more of the population than three to five percent is mentally ill. Therefore, mentally ill people are less likely than the general population to commit a violent crime or a gun crime. This to me is especially astounding because I did not know that. <laughs> it is counterintuitive to what I would have thought, but the more I think about it, someone who is depressed, they don't, they don't want to hurt other people, usually. Right. Well, they become more and more isolated too in a lot of cases mm -hmm. which um, the people that are talked about and the people that committed um, the Aurora Colorado shooting or uh, Vista California shooting that Elliot Roger weirdo um, all of these they were like that but that's not a that's not a profile that is more likely to lead to a shooting. So the right. question to me is, when someone like that does snap, why is it in such a spectacular fashion? 
Right, like, why is there breaking point that they go shoot up a school or a movie theater or mm-hmm. a public place? Because it seems like most of the people, all the people that do something like that are either Islamic terrorists or they're just a random person who snapped and when you try to find a coherent motivation for what they actually did, you can't find any. Right. Well, it doesn't help that a lot of them don't live through it. I mean, you don't get to interview a lot of these people. Can't ask them. Right. I mean, this is kind of a... It was, uh, James Holmes, like, he's another guy who... He's still alive. He's serving 12 life sentences in Colorado prison um, for the Aurora shooting. But it's... Those are rare. And I, I really don't... I mean, even with him, like, did, did we ever really get any solid answers as to why he shot up a movie theater? I mean... No. I don't know. And one thing, and I'm not... I, I'm not into... <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I love conspiracy theories and the fact that they're entertaining, and I love how, you know, people just come up with these things. But one thing that I did think was interesting is, like, we know so much about this Nicholas Cruz kid. I mean, we know how many phone calls were placed for police to come to his house, and we know that he posted crazy stuff on YouTube. And, like, when you think about... um the uh, the Vegas shooter like you just don't have that and I mean it, it's definitely a different different demographic like he was an older guy he probably didn't use Facebook he had no criminal background but it's just like we have so much info on this one kid and we have no info on um, what's his name Stephen Paddock so that's mm-hmm. I I just think that's funny that we no there was a lot know. of information on him between his father being essentially pure evil a criminal mastermind a criminal mastermind and this and paddock himself um while not having a done anything like that before was highly intelligent but at the same time was essentially a psychopath and the intelligent psychopath is probably one of the most terrifying um, personality profiles that you can that can exist Oh, yeah, look at Silence of the Lambs, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because when they set out to do something horrific, they're more likely to succeed. And they're also, it's easier for them to look at other people as not even really being people on their level, if they are actually, in fact, smarter than them. Um, The unintelligent psychopath will rant and rave and think that they're superior and then do, do and say stupid things that get them caught before they actually pull anything off. Yeah, like, well, but that's not even true because this guy was an idiot. He posted stuff on YouTube and he had a whole yeah, he's a dumb one. Like that should have worked, but it. I mean, it. I mean, it shouldn't have worked, but it did, because again, government sucks at everything. (laughs) Um, Oh, and how about the if you see something, stay something trope? And this was repeated after, after the shooting. People did. Yeah, everyone that's did see something, and we something and nobody listened it, it was almost like a boy who cried wolf scenario where they didn't maybe listen. people said too much and they stopped taking him seriously um but i sent you this link on uh um on facebook that kind of talks about um this yeah, uh white men see guns as a method to 
maintain or protect their position as they're losing economic status. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an interesting point. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's definitely... There's a few things that I, that I don't agree with. Um, one of the things that they... Well, there's a few things that I found interesting. Um, so this study, which is... Uh, I don't actually know... Uh, it's from Second Nexus, but it talks about um, basically um, how men see how white men see guns as a means of empowerment in times of economic uncertainty. And one of the things that it says is how um, there's basically this uh, like this hyper hyper patriot person who is. Um, who's like more or less, you know, like you're like your all American person um, who stands up for the country, but they are, I want to I find the actual quote because I thought it was really interesting. Economic realities are changing in the United States and there's this whole population of working class white men who feel embittered in the sense that maybe they don't feel as economically successful or as powerful in their communities as they think they should be. Well, that's particularly interesting to me. Yeah. Um, okay, so here it is. So it says, much of the conservative media says that the government is always out to get you, take away your guns, your money, for these narratives feed together. What's so fascinating is that you have a group of Americans who proclaim that they're patriots, and in fact, they say that their gun ownership makes them feel extremely patriotic. But they're the group that's most likely to say that it's okay to take up arms against the government. Yeah, and for I mean, that, me, that makes, occurred to me. <laughs> but that, that makes perfect sense. That, but that makes perfect sense because, I mean, what does a patriot do? A patriot defends the country more than anything. And if the government turns on the country, the government has then become the enemy, which would put you on the attack. They're the government conflating the state with the nation. Right. Right. So I mean, for, like, I don't think that that's. I I don't find that to be like a. I don't know, paradoxical or anything. I feel like that makes a lot of sense. Um, and he also said how, and this was interesting too, how he said that there's a there's a relationship between religion and gun culture. It's not what you might guess. There's actually a negative co- correlation between highly religious people and those who feel particularly empowered by their guns. Which makes sense to me because if you fi- if you find your power if you find your purpose in a higher power like in God, you don't need your identity in your weapon. Like you have your identity from God. But I think these you know you get these men who are lost or just you know emasculated and then they have this this gun and they feel like oh that's what makes me powerful that's what makes me who I am versus like the guy who's you know, firm in his religious convictions, he's like, well, the gun is, is nice, but, you know, who I am comes from God. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a really interesting uh, part of this piece as well. It's a really good, it's a good, it's a good article. I mean, it's definitely interesting. Um, probably slightly controversial, but it brings up some different uh, different points and cites a few different studies. This speaks to the belief 
in some dark state within the government that needs fighting. <laughs> <laughs> What's paradoxical is that white male gun owners in the United States see themselves as hyper-patriotic, but are the first to say, if the government impedes me, I have the moral and almost patriotic right to fight back. Well, what was the... What was the original line from the revolution and the, I actually think it was the Civil War, and the, the bonds that tie us together, that was the revolution, become untenable. It is incumbent upon men with guns to rise up and dissolve those bonds. I would need, I would need to look up that exact quote, but there's no reasonable expectation that this, this, this government, this state that we created will last forever. The Roman Empire fell. Oh yeah. It first became well, the, a non the Roman Empire Roman didn't Empire. fall. It gradually fell apart. I mean, it it fell, but it was like a slow, steady crumble. It was more entropy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty pathetic, else. actually. <laughs> it was really sad. I'm yeah, I'm getting pretty far into what was his name? I think Mike Duncan's. Is it Mike Duncan's? Um. History of Rome podcast. It's it's very short. It's only almost 200 episodes <laughs> of 30 about 30 minutes each. Um, but I just got through Diocletian, and I'm getting towards the end of Constantine. And by this point, and this is like the early 300s AD, so the early fourth century. And by that point, the Roman Empire was in no way Roman. <laughs> the capital hadn't been Rome for a long time and he built a new um, at that point um, Byzantium was this little town of like 10,000 people on the <laughs> what was the Hellespont um, in more Greek times but he wanted to set that up as his capital but I mean Rome hadn't been Roman so long, the the legions were populated or, or staffed with mostly German barbarians, <laughs> and had yeah. been for quite some time. So yeah, yeah they I mean, had it, no allegiance it, to Rome itself. Yeah, it didn't just collapse; it just kind of right. it, it fell it, apart. It <laughs> fell apart, and then those pieces kind of died off one by one. Yeah. So I mean, it's reasonable to imagine that that's what will happen to us. We were an amazing economic power right after World War II because most of the other industrial centers in the world were blown to bits. Our technology was more advanced. Our productive capacity was far ahead of the rest of the world. We dominated um, the globe when it came to exports of manufactured materials. Mm -hmm. But that has changed. That's eroded as not as we have necessarily lost our ability to make anything, but the rest of the world has improved its ability to manufacture and compete with us. And you know, we lost a lot of a lot of manufacturing to China, but as they have run out of available labor, um, they are getting labor in China is getting more expensive, and it's getting to the point with automation that we are competing with them once again and they are actually automating so that they can themselves continue to compete but it's reasonable to assume that we're not going to fall outright there isn't going to be you know it's the nuclear age there isn't going to be a war most likely that's going to end the United States 
It's our power is going to gradually continue declining as the rest of the world continues to improve, and that's fine. Right. But when it does, and when we become, when we get a little bit desperate, it's also reasonable to imagine that some despot is going to get a lot of people to believe a lot of shit, and <laughs> they may emotionally pass a whole lot of laws that are basically going to negate the Constitution and personal liberty. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of that, too, is going to depend on who, like, <laughs> the Supreme Court is, is going to be a bigger piece of the puzzle um, in the next, I, I would say, the next decade. Well, they interpret than, the Constitution. Well, right, yeah. Exactly. It's their job. They are what stands between the legislative and executive branch and the Constitution. Right. So that was that was quite a a rant, a rabbit trail. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, I think to kind of get back to a little bit, what we're talking about um. I think I think it's really constructive to to really underline the point. Getting back to the whole mentally ill uh, commit these kind of crimes point. <clears throat> a if you pay too much attention or a ton of attention to the mentally ill, you're going to be you're going to be really harming a lot of people that are already in in pretty dire straits. They're already in right. shape. They're already have some sort of mental illness whether it's depression schizophrenia ADHD whatever and you're you're going to be I, I don't want to say picking on them but they're a, po- they're a population of people that on average are going to commit fewer violent crimes than the rest of us you might say so it doesn't make sense to focus on them simply because we are overly, you know, obsessed with these school shootings. Like, if you want to do yeah. something, then you're going to have to bite <laughs> bite the bullet, so to speak. <laughs> you might need to militarize a little bit your schools if you want to keep them safe. It's always been true. The only way to stop a bad man with a gun... Is with a gun. Is with a good guy with a gun. Right. And that's not fun. It's not sexy. The feels aren't there when it comes to that because shit I don't want that right so mentally illness doesn't cause gun violence you can't use a psychiatric diagnosis to predict a gun crime before it happens and most importantly the psychiatric community is not cut out to do this kind of thing they've never done it before they don't want to be in the business of labeling the people that come to them as someone that needs to have their rights stripped away from them. They're trying well, to right. help them be a functioning member of society, not labeling them as somebody who's going to go shoot up a school. Right. Especially when they're not statistically more likely to, or, you know, to be violent. Yeah, because the amount, and I guess that study shows, I mean, the amount of people who do commit violent crimes is like 5%. And I mean, I don't know how you would even craft any sort of test or program or 
put together anything that would be able to, you know, label this person as, oh, yeah, this is the guy. This is the guy that's going to shoot up to school. we got to make sure that he doesn't get a gun. I mean, that just seems impossible. And not only impossible, People I mean, really. less likely to go and seek treatment. Yeah, absolutely, because it's it's super demeaning. I mean, you're already going to get help as a huge step in and of itself. So then making a, another barrier to entry for them is not solving the problem of mental illness. I think that's a major externality that we would see from something like that is people that might be violent or maybe a danger to themselves don't go right. and seek help, be, help because their rights are going to be trampled after they do that. Right. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's an unfair, it's, it's an unfair label that we're, we're putting on them, especially when, well, yeah, especially when research says that it's not true. Mm -hmm. So another, like some other things that the, this, this periodical pointed out, um, and anyone is free to go look it up. Just Google mental illness, mass shootings, and the politics of American firearms. There are some points that are simply not true. They kind of belie um, Dr. John Lott's contributions with more guns, less crime by saying they pointing out that states with higher gun rate ownership rates have higher firearm homicide rates. Problem is that they're conflating areas with states. When the, the specific locality is where people have a lot of guns, you don't have a lot of crime, but then you have far more crime in big cities that, incidentally, have very strict gun laws. Uh, ben Shapiro okay. talked about this on Friday. He pointed out that a single standard deviation increase in gun ownership correlates with a 12.9 increase in firearm homicide rates. Well, there's, there's something there. Um, I don't feel like explaining to people what a standard deviation is. Get a statistics <laughs> book. Here's the problem. That's not the strongest correlation that's out there between some statistic between ownership or you know, gun ownership or even dem or demographic that correlates with more firearm homicide. It turns out that a single standard de deviation increase in black population correlates with an 82.8% increase in firearm homicide rates. So you can do two things with inf this information. You can hate all black people or you can start doing something about what's causing the massive uh, single mothership rate within the black community, which is causing, arguably, and I would say conclusively, that violence. Um, right. We look back at, you know, you go back to the early 1960s, the single mothership um, rate within the black community was in the 20s, I believe it was 27%. Now, the single mother rate illegitimacy. I have a hard time saying illegitimacy rate because how do you say a person who's illegitimate? It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the percentage of children, of, of black children uh, born into a single parent family is now up to 77%. There's very convincing data that regardless of race, if you are raised in a, in a family where it's out a present father, you are far more prone to a promiscuity when you're young, if you are a woman, 
and if you are a man, far more prone to violence. There are epigenetic traits that are present in all races that when a father is not present, get activated, <laughs> accentuated. <laughs> and when you are exposed to child uh, abuse as a child, they're accentuated more. Um, and those, those factors are a stronger correlative with adult violence or even adolescent and then later early adulthood violence than socio socioeconomic status. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. Um, like breastfeeding, that'll buy you a couple IQ points for a child. Having the, of the father in the home, it actually, and I mean, this is proven, the rate of maturation the onset of puberty and the completion of the development of the frontal cortex of the brain is affected by whether or not a father is in the home. Think about that. That's insane. So if you have a population of people that are growing up where they don't, they three quarters of them don't have a father in the home. Um, Adrian Peterson a few years ago got in a lot of trouble because he beat the shit out of his kid with a belt and his defense was, well, that's our culture. Well, shit, that kind of child abuse, that has a major effect. I mean, that, that caused several IQ points for children that are abused in that way when they get older. And those IQ points are going to have them correlate more strongly or more. that'll make them more likely to commit crime. It will <clears throat> um, create the, <clears throat> excuse me, there are a number of hormones in the brain that are going to be considerably more common. You're going to get more cortisol in the brain that's going to cause the child to, again, develop sooner and become more violent and more aggressive and therefore perpetuate the same activities longer. It's um, If you read about R-selected versus K-selected uh, reproductive habits, they are they're genetic things that are actually present in everyone. Which set of genes gets... Um, expressed as you get older and become an adult depend on what hormones your brain is exposed to as it's developing, either in utero and especially in utero and early childhood. So we look at a, you know, we can, Jordan Taylor will say that, you know, black IQ is just lower because it just is, that's it no way to solve it so we need to we need to separate everyone a little bit but to me there's actual reasons it's it is a real thing a it's not racist to point it out and b there's reasons for it that are cultural and solvable so we need to focus on those things and actually fix that like you can't educate your way out of a low IQ but the things that you do to a kid when they're super young that has a, a severe, a, a major influence. So we look at um, the crime rates that have skyrocketed since the 1960s. Well, illegitimacy has gone up dramatically, and the same trends that happened first in the black community are happening in the white community. So this problem isn't going to max out; it's just going to get way worse. The same things that happened to the black community first are going to be right behind it in white culture. Yep. You're going to see all the same problems. It's reasonable to assume that you're going to see all the same problems. So to me, I think it makes more sense to 
deal with those issues if you actually care about further reducing um, violent crime. Um, the, the explanation for why violent crime decreased so much in the 90s is because all the kids that started getting aborted after Roe v. Wade was um, ruled in 1973 weren't around to commit those crimes. That's an incredibly cynical way of looking at it, but if you want to continue that trend, you're going to need to try something else. That effect flattened out after about 1998 or so. Um, the last last thing I promise I want to talk about, <laughs> does the NRA wield too much power in elections? Um, we talked about this a little bit um, before we started recording, but if you wanted to guess, and I already told you um, what these totals are, but if you were asking man on the street how much money does the NRA spend in political um, contributions, they'd probably say some huge number. In the 2016 election, it was about $1 million. They spent $3.2 million on lobbying, and total political spending was $54 million. That sounds like a lot. $54 million in one election cycle. Now, granted, that's... A million dollars per state. A little over a million dollars per state. Exactly. And, and that points out, this isn't just a presidential election. This is every election in that in that election cycle all 435 members of Congress hunt you know third of the senators and all state elections um, Planned Parenthood spent 32 million dollars Wall Street <laughs> spent 1.1 billion dollars and the one that was truly shocking to me labor unions spent $1.713 billion just during the 2016 election cycle. $1.7 billion. So when Nancy Pelosi is freaking out, accusing Republicans of being s slaves to the NRA and doing what the gun lobby tells them, essentially the NRA is a gun lobby. There, there's other gun ownership groups, but they're tiny and they have almost no money to spend. It pretty much just is the NRA. And their only influence is when they do a when they issue a, a rating for a lawmaker as to how good they are on, on gun issues, they don't spend much money. There isn't that much monetary influence that they're able to exert on an election. And when it comes compared to labor unions, which spend money almost exclusively on Democrats, they aren't a flea on a pimple on labor unions' ass. <laughs> So, I think we've covered uh, enough of the myths and enough of the issues, and I think mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm ready to call it quits for tonight. Um, I think this has been pretty good. Yeah, it's been a good discussion. So I think uh, it might be fun if next time, if um, we can get somebody who disagrees with us that actually can debate against us, rather than occasionally <laughs> just pretending to debate a different side. All um, right. I think we'll call it quits, and we'll talk to all of you next time.